Hi, my name is Marvin. The Old Testament's reading is found in Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 6. Israel, listen. Our God is the Lord, only the Lord. Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, all thy being, and all thy strength, all thy strength. These words I am commanding you today must always be on your mind, must always be on your mind. The words of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hallelujah. Hi, my name is Nick. The New Testament reading today is found in Ephesians 5, 1 through 5. Therefore, imitate God like dearly loved children. Live your life with love, following the example of Christ, who loved us and gave himself up for us. He was a sacrificial offering that smelled sweet to God. Sexual immorality and any kind of impurity or greed shouldn't even be mentioned among you, which is right for holy persons. Obscene language, silly talk, or vulgar jokes aren't, accept aren't acceptable for believers. Instead, there shall be thanksgiving. Because you know for sure that persons who are sexually immoral, impure, or greedy which happens when things become God's, those persons won't inherit the kingdom of Christ and God. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Martha. Thank you for standing for the gospel reading found in Matthew chapter 5, beginning in the 27th verse. You have heard that it was said, don't commit adultery. But I tell you that every man who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in his heart. And if your right eye causes you to fall into sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better that you lose a part of your body than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to fall into sin, chop it off and throw it away. It is better that you lose a part of your body than that your whole body go into hell. Therefore... Just as your heavenly Father is complete in showing love to everyone, so also you must also be complete. The Gospel of the Lord. Remain standing as we pray. So living God, we ask that by the power of your Spirit you would breathe on our hearts this morning, that as we hear your words, they would be life to us, they would communicate to us, reveal to us the love that the Father has for us, the grace that's available to us through our Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship and nearness of the Spirit to us. We ask for this in Christ's name. And everybody said, amen. You may be seated. Whenever you're around someone who discovers that you're a Christian and maybe they themselves are not, I'm not sure what you do, I'm not sure how you feel, but I immediately start to imagine all of the things that they think that Christians think, you know? And you sort of start to play this game, you think, uh-oh, he just found out I'm a Christian, or he just found out I went, she just found out I went to church this morning. What are they thinking that I think about them? 
Because sadly, if there's one thing that Christians have earned a reputation for, it is a reputation for not being very loving. And so we have become experts in sort of pointing out the world's sins or crying about uh, social um, um, woes while ignoring our own issues as believers. And so sometimes what we hear from people, if they're bold enough to be honest to us, is they say, why don't you Christians just stay out of everybody else's bedroom and stay out of everybody else's wallet? We'd rather you didn't talk about these things at all. And some people have not very kindly created bumper stickers to match this opinion in our own city uh, that say something like, focus on your own blank family. And all of this has made us as Christians a little bit tentative to say, well, maybe we shouldn't talk about those things. And so then as Christians, we kind of say, well, let's not ever talk about money or let's not ever talk about sex or let's not ever talk about these things because, look, we don't want to be perceived as not being loving, so let's just talk about love. But deep down inside, we know that we can't escape these texts in the scriptures. And deep down, we know that maybe we might be guilty of doing a little bait and switch with people. By saying to them, God loves you, God loves you. And then say, but hang on, there's also all this other stuff about how we're supposed to live with regards to sex and money. And so we wonder, what do we do with all of this stuff? And I want to say two things this morning before we even get into the text. And the first is, it has to do with where our focus is. A lot of times our focus is outward on the world and we want to police the world's behavior and say, let me tell you how you are supposed to live instead of recognizing that actually this letter that we're going through as a church in this series, this letter of Ephesians, was not written to the city of Ephesus. It was written to the church in Ephesus. And so maybe the first thing we need to say is when we talk about these things, this is a family conversation. This is about talking to all of us who belong to Jesus Christ. This is not about us being experts in other people's behaviors or how they should. This is about us saying, wait a minute, what about us as the church? But secondly, it's not just an issue of focus. It's also an issue of the foundation. On what basis do Christians care uh, or talk about sex and money? For many of us, maybe just because of the way we grew up, we sort of think, well, this is just what it takes to be a good person. I mean, this is generic morality, right? This is just behave, be good. I had an aunt uh, growing up on my dad's side who, who was a Hindu. And for many years in my childhood, she would say, Glenn, just be good. Just be a good boy. Don't fight. And, you know, of course, I never did anything bad, but she felt the need to keep telling me that, of course, right? But there's this sort of generic morality. Well, just be good. Just don't fight. Just don't create trouble. And so as Christians, when we read verses that talk about how we're supposed to live, we kind of import that into our general frame that says, well, just be a good person. Don't do anything hurtful. Don't, Don't cause harm to others. And so our kind of watered down version of morality is as long as I don't harm anyone else, it's all fine, right? But this is not the framework that the scriptures use to talk about sex and money. The other framework we might tend towards as Christians is to say, well, let me just not be tainted by the world. Let me just keep my distance from that icky, icky, icky world. Those icky sinners. And I just, I don't want to be anything like this. Ooh. And so there's sort of this holier than thou thing that says, oh, I'll tell you why we live this way. It's because I'm better than you. It's because I'm, I'm, I'm holier than you. But neither of those are the right foundation for talking about any of this. 
And so here we are in this series on Ephesians. We, we began a couple of weeks ago with Ephesians 4. Now this letter in general is about how Jesus is putting everything back together again and how because of the resurrection of Christ, the world is being redeemed. And so Ephesians 1 is about heaven and earth coming back together. Ephesians 2 is about humanity and God being brought back together. And Ephesians 3 is about Jews and Gentiles, the ethnic divisions, the racial tensions uh, that are now being resolved for those who belong together in Christ. And Ephesians 4 begins, there's a turn there in that verse of Ephesians 4, the opening of Ephesians 4, where this is now about how we are to live. And so there's a few things Paul says. He says, live in unity. We talked about that in week one. And then last week, Pastor Jason talked about living as new persons with our words and with our work. And even with our wounds, we handle offense differently. Resurrection life is reshaping how we live. And so today in Ephesians 5 verse 1, this is what Paul says. Therefore, imitate God like dearly loved children. Before we say another word, we need to say that we already are dearly loved children of God. You already are dearly loved children of God. This whole thing, everything we say today is about becoming who you already are. Everything we say today is not about how to earn it, how to maybe be good enough and so God will say, okay, I'll let you be my kids. See, for better or for worse, Children don't earn the parents they receive. Some of you came from homes where that really was a difficult home, painful situation growing up with a father or a mother, maybe, maybe a very dark place. You need to know today that you didn't deserve that, that it's not your fault. It wasn't because oh, I was a bad kid and therefore my dad beat me. No, you didn't deserve that. He didn't earn that. But you know, the other side of this is also true. You say, well, I just had this great home. Isn't that great? It's because I'm so lovely. But you didn't earn that either. You didn't earn that either. Children just are given to parents. In fact, it's the other way around. It's children are the fruit of their parents' love, biologically, but also adopted children, where parents say, let's share this love and let's adopt a child and on, on both both ways that children are added to a home are the result of love in some way. Generally speaking, what we're trying to say here is that children don't earn your parents. And so if you already are a dearly loved child of God, Paul's saying this is a status conferred on you that you didn't have to earn. This is a status conferred to you that you didn't have to prove and wrestle and say, oh God, please pick me, pick me, pick me. This isn't dodgeball, you know. God has already chosen you in Christ. Thanks be to God. I have loved over the last couple of years meeting with my spiritual director personally and for the first year and a half we've met once a month and then we've sort of found a, a rhythm that works now but there's a simple yet deeply profound message that I have learned to, to sort of internalize in my own heart, and that is, I have nothing to fear, I have nothing to prove, I have nothing to gain, I have nothing to lose. I am already a dearly loved child of God. 
We can't say anything more this morning without letting that be the bedrock of all of this. Paul won't even get into these specifics until he reminds them, you already are dearly loved children of God. Everything I'm about to tell you, every item of behavior flows out of identity as a dearly loved son or daughter of God. You already are. But here's the thing, children are to grow up. And for better or for worse, children also tend to grow up like their parents. And so early on, parents will say, okay, repeat after me, ball, milk, dada, mama. You, know, you have them repeat that imitation is how they learn. Then as they get older, you say, okay, don't do what I do. Just do what I'm telling you to do. I don't really want you to imitate anymore because that's dangerous. But Paul says, no, listen, when we're talking about God, our parentage being God, he says, therefore, imitate God like dearly loved children live your life with love. Live your life with love. That's the banner over this morning's text. Live your life with love. You are dearly loved, so live your life with love. Grow up. Be like the God whose kids you are. Live your life with love. Now, I want to take some time now this morning to say, what does that actually mean? What does it mean to live our lives with love? In verse 2, Paul goes on, he spells it out. He says, live your life with love, following the example of Christ who loved us And who gave himself for us. He was a sacrificial offering that smelled sweet to God. So right away we can say that living with love means living with a self-giving and sacrificial love. Right away we can say that. Okay, Paul, when Paul, he he won't just leave it as a random phrase, an abstract concept. He says, no, no, you want to know what it looks like? Look at Christ. He gave himself as a sacrifice that smelled sweet to God. So living with love means living with a self-giving and sacrificial love. I love the message paraphrase of this. Eugene Peterson says, watch what God does, and then you do it. Like children who learn proper behavior from their parents, mostly what God does is love you. (laughs) So keep company with him and learn a life of love. Observe how Christ loved us. His love was not cautious but extravagant. He didn't love in order to get something from us, but to give everything of himself to us. Love like that. Isn't that beautiful? He didn't love to get something, but he loved to give everything. So, So love like that. So the next thing we can kind of take from this text here is to say, look, wait a minute, living with self-giving and sacrificial love is the opposite of using people or things for what you can gain out of them. It's the very opposite of using it. In fact, the message paraphrase goes on to, to spell that out. Don't allow love to turn into lust, setting off a downhill slide into sexual promiscuity, filthy practices, or bullying greed. Though some tongues just love the taste of gossip, those who follow Jesus have better uses for language than that. Love that phrase. Don't talk dirty or silly. That kind of talk doesn't fit our style. Thanksgiving is our dialect. What a great phrase. You can be sure that using people or religion or things just for what you can get out of them, these are the usual variations on idolatry, will get you nowhere. And certainly nowhere near the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of God. Using people or religion or things just for what you get out. This is the very opposite of the kingdom way of self-giving, sacrificial love. See, this is Paul's setup to talk about sexual morality. 
Unlike the Roman letters of his day or kind of you know, other texts that were around in the first century, this is not a random list of virtues or abstract codes to live by. This is Paul rooting his vision of the human flourishing life in an understanding of Christ-shaped love. He's not saying, you know what, generically, this is what, make good, this is what makes good citizens, people who have courage, people who have this, and he just gives a list of virtues to make you good citizens. That's not how Paul's working it out. Paul's working it out by saying, look, God loved you. His love made you his child. So grow up to be like the God whose child you are, which is a self-giving love, which is the opposite then of a love that uses people or things. And it's only in this context that we can understand the Christian teaching on sex and sexual morality. If we miss this, we miss all of it, and it just becomes a bunch of fussy rules. And then when it's inconvenient, we say, well, I, I mean, who, why did my youth pastor say that? Why did my old pastor say Well, who really can? Let's just not worry about all of this stuff. It's not abstract. If you let me make this a family conversation and get a little more specific this morning... I'd like to. Why does sex matter? Why does sex matter? Is it just, oh, well, I mean, it's just sort of this thing, and we've got to talk about it, but mostly it's just we have rules about it. The logic of the scripture goes something like this. The more intimate the relationship, the more powerful it is. And if sex is the embodiment of human intimacy, then sex, therefore, is powerful. I never heard that message in my youth group. I never heard people say sex is powerful. I mostly internalized people saying sex is not for you to worry about. (laughs) Or sex is bad. Or sex is, no, 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 we we don't talk about sex. Unless you're married, then by all means. And so somewhere along the way, it's either the worst thing ever or, hey, you're married. (laughs) And neither of those quite do it justice. Instead, what we see in the scriptures is that sex has the power to create or to destroy. Last week, Pastor Jason talked about our words as having this life-giving power. Sex is a similar thing. It has the power to damage or to dignify. It has the power to create life, to create a new union, or to destroy and depersonalize and damage both ourselves and another person. It's powerful. So what that means then is the heart of Christian teaching on sexuality is not just wait until you're married. It is that there is a sacred intimacy that is founded on self-giving and sacrificial love. Now chew on that for a moment. Let's talk about that for a minute. The heart of Christian teaching on sex is not, well, whoa, whoa, just wait till you're married. The heart of Christian teaching on this is there is a sacred intimacy that is founded on self-giving and sacrificial love. Actually, we could expand this to talk about all human relationships and all human loves. C.S. Lewis decades ago wrote a, a thin book called The Four Loves, and he talked about the different human loves, whether it's the love that we have for one another as friends or the love that parents have for children or familial love. But Lewis goes on to argue that any human love left to itself made an end in itself, made a God in itself, begins to self-destruct. 
And so you've all been with a friend who that person maybe treated the friendship with you as the, the only thing, the source of all life and joy. And so then all of a sudden it became clingy and destructive and jealous and weird. And you're like, I don't know what just happened. The friendship love turned in on itself. And Lewis says there's only, there's only, the only way to sanctify human loves is to place it in the shape of Christ-like love. To let the self-giving sacrificial love of God take all of our other human loves and begin to redeem it and shape it in its own image. To let God be God. But see, if we don't get this, if all we say in the church is that, well, the heart of Christian teaching on, on sexuality is get married and, oh, by the way, marriage, you know, man and a woman. So, you know, that's all we have to say about the subject. And we set ourselves up for all kinds of distortions, not least of which is, quote unquote, Christian marriages that operate on lust. Now, the tragedy of being in the seat that I'm in is having heard enough stories over the years where a young couple gets married only to discover that one spouse had every intention of using the marriage as a justification to live out all of their lusts. And so all of a sudden, pornography is involved in the marriage and other, other factors are, are brought into it and there's, it's not being founded on sacrificial and self-giving love. It's just lust redirected. And the scripture wants to do more for us. The gospel wants to do more for us than just to say, well, lust is whatever, just as long as you're married. In fact, we need to say something about the covenant of marriage because if sex is powerful, then the only container powerful enough to keep it built on self-giving and sacrificial love is a covenant. And this is why sex outside the marriage is so damaging. I, I, I meet young people from time to time and say, well, you know what? I love her. She loves me. We already decided. I mean, we're not married yet, but we just decided to go on a camping trip and, you know, wink, wink. You know. I say, well... I, <laughs> I just need you to understand this. It's not that you're breaking rules. It's that you're exposing yourself to a kind of vulnerability because this pow- the power of sex can only be housed within the covenant of marriage. Fire, we know in Colorado, outside of a fireplace can do great damage. But within a fire pit and within a fireplace, you're like, this is great, this is the best thing ever, right? That's what Paul is trying to say. The power to create life that happens in the embodiment of this act, this this act which is the embodiment of intimacy, requires the casing, the container, the framing of a covenant love where two people have said, by the grace of God, my life is yours, not just my body in this moment. And until you have that covenant with one another, all other sex is bound to become a wildfire. That's what the scriptures are saying. It has to be founded on self-giving sacrificial love and it has to be cased in the covenant of that promise of self-giving love. This is why pornography is so destructive. In our age, there's probably not a person who's not been exposed to it, who has not had some measure of struggle with it, But early on, all that Christians said about pornography is, well, keep it to a minimum or don't. 
And I wish that in my college years I had someone say to me, this is going to damage your mind and your body and set you up on the wrong foot for all of your other relationships in life. Because the issue with pornography is not that it's breaking some arbitrary code, but that it actually works against the very design of your body and of someone else's body. It teaches us to dehumanize. It teaches us to approach a person for what we can use them for and get out of them. And worst of all, it teaches us to keep using them until it's all used up because in the end, pornography can never deliver on its promise. It can never deliver on the promise. And what you're left with is a disordered desire in your own life and a misused or abused person on the other side. We Christians, we're great about talking about this at public issues, you know. We want to be pro-life. We want to be anti-trafficking. All of that is true. But can I just say that unless we address the root of a destructive way of approaching other people's bodies, we are part of the problem. We're part of the problem. So if we keep using other people's bodies through images or movies or clips or whatever, we can't say, oh, but, but by the way, I, I don't believe in this and that. Oh, really? If the sanctity of life matters and if every person is in the image of God, then we dare not misuse another human being. We dare not approach another holy human being this way. We dare not. And so Paul Paul actually links lust with gratitude. I mean, with greed. He starts to say, he starts to say, and don't, don't even get in the stuff of, of bullying greed. He says, look, don't have jokes that are this way. Don't get near the, the coarse and filthy joking. But also don't give in to greed and grabbing. Why? Because did you know that greed orients us toward things the way lust orients us toward people? See, sometimes we think, well, greed, greed is an over-attachment to things, isn't it? No, it's the opposite. Kavanaugh said in, in, in his theology of consumerism and, and how we get out of this, he said consumerism is not an attachment to things, it's a detachment from things. Consumerism detaches you from things so much that you say, eh, it's disposable. That, 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 those shoes, that bike, that phone, it's an iPhone 6, I know. And we live in an age where technology has intentional obsolescence, where it's, in, it's meant to go obsolete. And so it's teaching, it's creating in us not an attachment to things, but a detachment from it. To say, ah, oh, yeah, it's this stupid phone. I, I need the latest. I need the next. I need, the, I need a bigger house. I need a better car. I need, and maybe you do. It's not always. Those things don't always come out of greed and consumerism, right? But when it comes out of the motivation of greed... It orients us to things in the same way that lust orients us to people, greed orients us to things and says, ah, let me just get what I need and then I really don't care about it. I don't care about this house. I don't care about... Even our, our tendency in, in real estate in the city is to abandon the neighborhood and just, just keep building new ones out in the edges while the inside of our town hollows out because nobody wants to restore. This is what we do. Lust and greed share actually the same mindset. Use until you use up. Use until you use up. 
Let's just get, let's, let's get it, whatever I can, and then let's get out of it. Now, because I know this is all of us, the question is, is there hope? How do we get out of this? You, you know there is hope because Paul begins by reminding us how we are dearly loved children. It means that even when you're stuck in the cycle of lust or greed, you're still a dearly loved child. That there is forgiveness for you. There's hope for you. And there is a way out. The one affirmative statement Paul makes, he says, don't talk like this, don't live like this. And then he says one affirmative thing. You know what it is? He says, thanksgiving, give thanks. And you're like, that is so weird, Paul. Like you're talking about all this heavy stuff, you know, like lust and greed and fornication and big words about dark things. And then you're like, but give thanks. You're like, what? How how does that even compute? Neuroscientists and counselors have taught us a lot about habits. And they've taught us a lot about neuropathways. And they've taught us a lot about how difficult it is to just stop doing something that you're caught in a cycle of doing. It's very much like pouring water downhill and if someone's already dug a trench, guess where that water's gonna go? Down that way. And you, no amount, and you know this, no amount of standing at the edge of an old pattern or an old habit and saying, I'm not gonna do that. No, I'm, I'm not gonna do that. I'm not gonna do that. Oh crap, I'm doing that, you know. <laughs> Our brains are working against us right? But what neuroscientists and counselors have taught us about habits is while you may not be able to erase an old habit, you can weaken it by forming a new one. And so if water's being poured down the hill and the old trench went left, guess what you got to do? Dig a trench that goes right. Dig a trench that goes the other way and say, okay, well, let's try this. This is why Paul says, imitate God. This is going to take some effort. This is going to take some intentionality. This is, going to, this is going to take beholding Jesus and saying, okay, I want to live this way, not that way. And the one key to break the cycle is gratitude. It's gratitude. Gratitude can break the cycle of self-serving lust and greed. Now, this seems radical. This seems like no way. How does gratitude deliver on that? Because gratitude, as Jason said to me this week, prevents us from looking elsewhere. Think about the sin in the garden. Adam and Eve have all the fruit of every tree, and God says, this one, don't eat this one. And the serpent says, I I think God's holding back. And Adam and Eve say, you're right, I think he is holding back. And they begin to look elsewhere. But gratitude says, God's not holding back. Everything I need, I have. I know it's challenging. I know it's difficult. These aren't the circumstances I would have chosen. But there's something here that I can find a way to let gratitude turn me away from this old cycle. Maybe it's a person on a business trip gets... He's facing the temptations in the room to be able to say, Lord, I want to be thankful. Thankful today for the job that you've given me. Thankful today. And maybe if they're married, you say, thank you for the spouse that you've given me. And you, you go down the list. You say, Let gratitude break the cycle of self-serving lust. Maybe if you find yourself compulsively spending beyond the budgets and you just can't stop because you just saw that other thing on sale, I just got to have it. 
So God, thank you for the things I already have. We make shopping lists. Maybe we can make gratitude lists. Here's all the things I already have that I'm thankful for. And it doesn't need to be on sale. It's already 100% off. It's mine. And if you can't think of anything else, we go back to verse 1. You already are a dearly loved child of God. You have nothing to prove. You have nothing to fear. You have nothing to gain. You have nothing to lose. So thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. I already am a dearly loved child of God. See, here's the thing, you guys. You cannot live a life of love until you live knowing you already are loved. You cannot live a life of love until you live knowing you already are loved. And it flows in us and it flows out of us. Look, I know for all of us in here, cycles and habits that took years to form are not often broken in a day. They often take years to undo. And so you might be living in a place today of saying, oh, I had a great week. Oh, I had a bad... And you're, you're wrestling with the cycles that you've been caught up in. I want you to know today that you are living as a dearly loved child of God. There's forgiveness for you. There's no shame over you. There is only a loving God who wants, you to, wants to keep leading you out of this cycle and through gratitude lead you into a life of love. Amen?